open them to Joshua chapter 1. If you please find Joshua chapter 1. This is our second lesson from the book of Joshua. We will be studying this over the next few months. As I discussed in our last message, Joshua is a bridge book from God's promises to Israel to the fulfillment of those promises. God told Abraham about 600 years prior to the time that we're reading here tonight that he was going to bring him into a land. This land would be the inheritance of his people. And now those 600 years are past, and the people are right up at the brink of the promised land ready to go in. And there are certain preparations that have to be made before they're able to do that. Now, although uh, Joshua is a bridge book, it's also a book of continuation because all the promises that God gave to Abraham and to the Israelites before this time are contingent upon their following his word, uh, staying in the word as they should. And what God requires for us to do will always come to pass when we stay within his word as he wants us to. He told Joshua in the eighth verse of chapter one, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous and then shalt thou have good success. And the foundation for Joshua's work is the very same as the foundation that we have in the church today. And that is we must build our work here upon the foundation of God's word. Now, many churches don't do that anymore. They substitute how to build the church with uh, things like Madison Avenue uh, marketing techniques, all kinds of programs that they try to implement. And there's very little dependence any longer upon really the truth of God's word to build his church. But if we're going to build a church the way the Lord wants us to, then we've got to stay in God's word, not depart from that, because anything else that we do will build the church in their energy of the flesh, and that's not with the power of God, neither is it pleasing to God. So here, we at Berean, we're committed to the Bible. We're committed to teach the Bible only. It's the only thing that we preach. Our mission and our commission is found in God's word. And we won't be successful unless we have steadfast dependence upon the word. Well, last week we talked about God's call to Joshua. He is the new appointed leader. Moses, the lawgiver for Israel, was dead. God wouldn't allow him to enter into the promised land. And so the mantle of leadership falls on Joshua. And Joshua is the one that God has designated to bring the people into this new land. Well, there are certain principles to take that land. And we talked about that in the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1. And tonight we're going to talk about some of the preparations that had to be made. So let's stand, if you would, please, as we read God's word. We're looking at Joshua chapter 1, and we'll start reading at verse number 10. Joshua 1, verse number 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the hosts and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals. For within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest and hath given you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side, Jordan. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them. Until the Lord hath given your brethren rest, as he hath given you. And they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. 
Then ye shall return unto the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side, Jordan, toward the sun rising. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that thou commandest we will do, and whithersoever thou sendest us we will go. According as we hearkened unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto the words and all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you that you might bless as we talk about your word tonight. Help us to learn something here, Lord. And we love this great story of Joshua and the people taking the land of Canaan and help that Lord, that it might be an example to us that we would follow you in all things exactly as you tell us to do. We give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We notice here that verse number 10 begins with a very clear-cut command from Joshua. What we don't find here is Joshua calling a committee together and organizing a group of people to try to figure out how they're going to take the land of Canaan. We don't find Joshua uh, gathering together all the generals of the people and laying out a battle plan or asking those men to give an assessment of the probabilities of uh, what it would take to take the land of Canaan. So we don't see any strategies outlined here. What we actually see is Joshua speaking to the people and telling them exactly what God has told him to do. Well, Joshua was a man who who was in touch with the Lord. And just like the apostle Paul, when Paul was called out to be a, a preacher to the Gentiles, a missionary to them, he said, I conferred not with flesh and blood. And this is exactly what, what Joshua does here. He doesn't ask anybody. He doesn't go to the people and say, what do you think? He comes to them and he tells them exactly what God says to do. And really, none of these things are open for debate. This is not an argument that he's going to make, these people will make with Joshua. They're not going to argue with God. Here's the way God says to do it, and they have to do it that way. And you know there are many things that God has called us to do that we're not to second-guess God. We're not to enter into long hours of protracted prayer about what God wants us to do because there are some things in the Word of God that are very clearly outlined. We don't have to ask questions. God told us what to do. And so what we have to do, we have to get ready to go. We've got to step up, we've got to step out, and we've got to go because God has spoken. This is exactly what Joshua did. The, the, the task before him is clear. There's no doubt what God wants. The land is theirs. And now God says, I want you to go in and I want you to take it. Now, for the next few minutes, we're going to consider what God told Joshua to do. First of all, we see here that Joshua gave the pronouncement to leave. He comes to the leaders of the people and he gives them this pronouncement to lead. He transfers the or transmits the information to the leaders of the people and he gives them three separate commands in verse number 11. Let's look at verse 11 again. It says, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals, for within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. The first command that Paul, uh, that uh, rather Joshua gives them is to prepare. Joshua says, prepare you vittles. That word vittles, that's not a word that we use very often anymore. Uh, I remember when I was a child, I used to like to watch the show Daniel Boone. 
being from Kentucky, naturally I like to watch Daniel Boone. And uh, Fess Parker played Daniel Boone, and he had uh, an Indian friend by the name of Mingo. Anybody remember that? Daniel Boone's friend named Mingo. And he was a very interesting character because uh, Daniel Boone found him out in the middle of the wilderness of Kentucky there one day. And he goes up and this Indian is helping him uh, kill these uh, other Indians that are out there. And so he goes up and he speaks to Mingo. And it turns out that Mingo has a perfect Oxford education. You just don't find that out in the wilderness. But but that was Mingo. But I remember that... uh, uh, Daniel Boone would talk about this all the time. We've got to get us some vittles. Got to get us some vittles. And, and he said, we've got to prepare vittles. Well, what does that mean? Well, maybe you don't know the word, but the word actually means just food. Uh, vittles is food. So this is what Joshua tells the people. If we're going to go, then we need some food. Well, Napoleon spoke that now famous line. He said, an army travels on its stomach. And what he meant was, we're not going to go very far if we don't get enough food to supply everybody and keep the army fed so that we can fight. Someone today has said that, well, soldiers really don't march to the battlefield anymore, so this is not so important. They ride in Humvees now. But back in Joshua's time, they did this. I mean, they, they had to march, and without food, they weren't going to go very far. But I suppose the most interesting thing about this is that Joshua says, prepare vittles. And we notice that Joshua doesn't say anything at all about preparing boats. Here they are, they're right up next to the Jordan River. The Jordan River is at flood stage. And they're not going to conquer Jericho, and they're not getting into the promised land unless they get across that river. The thing that we would think that Joshua would say, boys, we've got to transport ourselves across the river. So the first thing that we have to worry about, we've got to worry about a boat. How are we going to get from here over to there? And you wonder about that. Why, why didn't Joshua tell them, let's prepare some boats? Well, one of the reasons that he didn't, because if there was anything that Joshua knew, he knew the Lord had some experience with getting people across large bodies of water. God knew how to do that. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but Joshua and Caleb were only one of two people that were over the age of 20, that were alive at this time, who had actually gone with Moses across the Red Sea. And between that 40 years before this, that they went across the Red Sea, and here they are at the Jordan River, Joshua and both Caleb, I think, knew very well that God has a way to get us from here over to there. We don't need to worry about the transport, because Joshua believed that there was a miracle right around the corner. Another interesting thing we see about this is that they did prepare food. And did you know that this was the first time in about 40 years that they had to worry about preparing food? All throughout the wilderness wanderings, God gave them all the food they needed. He supplied quail and manna. And so they never had to worry about where their next meal was coming from. But here Joshua says, you've got to prepare food. And the reason for that is they're going over into the promised land. Manna is not going to be sustained for very much longer. So they need the food in order to march. So they needed to get used to feeding themselves. God's not going to take care of that anymore. And there's a lesson that we learn in that as well. When you need a miracle, God can give you a miracle. I mean, there's no doubt about that. God is a miracle-performing God. But most of the time, folks, God does not work in, with miracles. 
What he does is he expects you to get your rear end up off the couch and he's going to use your hands and your feet to do what you need to do. Now, he's going to supply you all the energy that you need to do it, but you're God's instrument to do these things. Now, God could have very easily said, you don't have to worry about anything. We're going to go over into Canaan, but you sit here right now, and I'm going to go over there, I'm going to pulverize all the Canaanites, and everything will be ready for you when you get over there. God could have done that, and he could have done it very easily, but God didn't. God said, you're going to have to trust me for this, and you're going to have to go in, and you're by your faith, you're going to fight, and you're going to win, and you're going to claim the land that I promised you. So that's the first thing that he told them to do. Prepare, prepare some food, we've got to go. The second command that he gives them here is a command to pass over. And remember, they're not told to prepare boats, but yet Joshua says to the people, pass over. Now notice what he says in verse number 11. He says, within three days ye shall pass over. Arthur Pink has a very interesting note on this. He compares those three days that they waited to the three days that Jesus was in the tomb. Now, they're ready. They've got to go through Jordan to get to the other side. And in three days, Joshua did not say, well, in three days, we hope that we're going to get to the other side. In three days, we're going to try to cross the Jordan and get over there. He said, no, ye shall pass over. And did you notice that when Christ spoke about his resurrection, that he told the Jews, he said, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus was coming back. Now, Pink compares that, and he says, it's only as the Christian conducts himself as one who has risen with Christ that he can overcome the flesh, the world, and the devil. And that requires two things from him, the exercise of faith and obedience. Now, friends, here's what faith does. Faith never says, I will believe If you've got a schematic for me and you can show me exactly how it's going to work and how we're going to overcome and how everything is going to come down, then I'll believe that this can happen. No, faith doesn't do that. Faith just steps out in obedience. We'll see that a little bit later when we come to the actual crossing of the Jordan River. When those priests went down to the river and they got ready to cross, the river had not parted yet. And the priests had to step their feet in, and it wasn't until their feet stepped in that God parted the waters. And when they went down there, they didn't have any intentions of swimming. They knew they were going to cross the river, and so, but they had to take that step. Well, I think here's a lesson we need to learn as well. And it's far evident, I think, that many of the things that we do in our church, maybe not in this church, but in many churches, many things that the church churches do is not done, are not done in faith. When it comes to things like finances and paying for things, sometimes we get all worried about it and we wring our hands and before we step out to do anything, we've got to check the bank balance first. We've got to see if we can bankroll things and then if we can, then we can spend the money to go ahead. Well, of course, we ought to be prudent about things. I mean, God expects us to do that. But if we're sure about something and God tells us that we need to take a step, it doesn't matter If we have a dime in the checking account, God is able to perform those things. We just step out and we do what God says. 
And sometimes we can't see ahead. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to work. But we do know this. When God says step out, when he says to do it, he has all the logistics worked out. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the thing that we have to do, we've got to take that first step of faith and just simply obey God. When we do, the waters will part. But let's go on because we have still another command. The third command here is possess. And I like the way that Joshua puts this. He says, go possess the land. And he says here, which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. And there we find another reminder that God's name is to be exalted as they go. They will possess the land, but only because the Lord God gave it to them. Now, notice in your Bible there, your King James Version, we've been over it many times. You see the word Lord, it's capitalized. And what does that mean? We all know what it means. It means Jehovah God. This is the God of salvation. And he says to go get it, go possess it. And the Lord is the one that's going to cause this to happen. You know, it's strange that there are many people who think that they can possess salvation as if they can go out there and they can get it without attributing all the strength and all the power to obtain it to God himself. Many people think that. And do you know if the theology of salvation that many churches have today was applied to the children of Israel, you know what they would have done? They would have parted that river by themselves. If if he taught those people, like people are teaching salvation today, they would have been able to part that river by themselves. The Jericho walls would fall down flat all by their clever planning and manipulation. Well, the only way they're going to take this land is because the Lord God gave it. They're not getting it any other way. And folks, the only way that a person will ever receive salvation is because the Lord God gives it. You no more open your heart to receive Christ than the Israelites could part the Jordan River. You don't take salvation from God. You receive it. You don't go after it. God draws you. And folks, these Israelites, they wouldn't have ever believed that they could do this if God had not even given them that faith and that courage to go over there and and walk through the, uh, the waters of the Jordan and to go conquer the city of Jericho. So they're ready to go now because they have confidence in their leader. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. And now they're ready to go because they believe that. Well, as we go on, the next thing we see here is the pledge of loyalty. In verse number 12, Joshua speaks particularly to a certain group of Israelites. He speaks to two and a half of the tribes, particularly here, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. He speaks to them personally, and he elicits from them a pledge of loyalty. And the pledge here is that they will fight with the rest of the children of Israel until the whole land has been subdued. Let's look at this in verse number 12. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest and hath given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side, Jordan. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord hath given your brethren rest as he hath given you. And they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. Then shall ye return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side, Jordan, toward the sunrising. 
Now, we might ask the question, uh, why, why is Joshua speaking to these two and a half tribes this way? I mean, what's behind this? Why is he speaking particularly to them? Well, the reason is these two and a half tribes had already received an inheritance that was outside of the promised land. Now, let's turn to Numbers chapter 32, if you will. Numbers chapter 32, we're going to read about this. Uh, Before Israel ever reached the land of Canaan, these people from these two and a half tribes saw something on the other side of the Jordan that they liked better. Numbers chapter 32, and look at verse number 1. Now, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that, behold, the place was a place for cattle. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and to Eleazar the priest and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Dibon and Jazer and Nimrah and Heshbon and Elielah and Shebam and Nebo and Beon, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. Wherefore said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession, and bring us not over Jordan. And so instead of going into the promised land that God had given, these people decide, we're going to stay on this side of the Jordan River. Well, Moses consented to allow that, but he didn't think that this was a very good idea. And the reason he didn't, because he knew that there is potential here to discourage the rest of the people when they get ready to go in there and fight. Now, they may just decide to be like the two and a half tribes and stay on the other side of Jordan. Why go through the fight to possess the promised land? So Moses sees here a potential for discouragement, so he starts to put up an argument about it. In verse number 6 of chapter 32 in Numbers, he says, Shall your brethren go to war, and ye shall sit here? So after discussing it for some time, the Reubenites and the Gadites, they they were very insistent about this. And they said, Moses, if you'll let us do this, then we promise that we're not going to settle down. We're not going to move into our permanent houses until we've helped you to fight against those Canaanites, to subdue them. And and until we've had the victory, we're not going to settle into our, our houses here. Now, back in our text verses in Joshua chapter 1, this is what Joshua is addressing. He's talking about this promise that was made back in Numbers 32. I'm not going to go into all this right now, but I want to tell you something. This turned out to be a fatal mistake for those people. Instead of choosing to be with God's people, they were far more interested in their living That was the most important thing to them. Not where God wanted them to be, but they were more interested in their living. And what happens here is this poor choice that they make puts them further away from God's people and the place where God is worshipped. And what we find here is these two and a half tribes, later on, many years later, they're the first ones to go into apostasy and the first ones to be taken into captivity. But that's a long way off yet. It turned out to be a bad idea, but here, at this point, it was acceptable to Moses, so the agreement was made that they would help with the fight. So now what Joshua does here is he secures their loyalty. Well, why was it necessary for Joshua to address this? Well, first of all, prosperity demanded it. Joshua said, when you have done this, then 
you will enjoy your land. So they'd made a promise. I mean, they, they told Moses, and, and by extension, of course, they also told God, we're making a promise here, here's what we'll do. And so Joshua will not let them have this land. He will not let them prosper. And also, by extension again, God will not let them prosper unless they're true to the promise that they make. If you remember, several months ago, when we were studying in Nehemiah, we talked a lot about vows. When you make a vow to the Lord, you must keep your vows. If you're going to be successful and you want God to bless you, if you make a promise to God, you make sure that you carry through with your promise. Now, what many people do, they bargain with God, they pray to the Lord, and they say, God, if you'll just give me this, if you'll do this, then I promise that I'll do that. And you know what happens? God enters into the bargain with them. And what happens with God? He always fulfills his side of the vow. But what happens so many times is the people of God, they get what they want from God, then they forget all about what they've said. Well, this is what Joshua will not let happen. They've made a promise. There are some people in the tribe, these two and a half tribes, that have said, you know, Moses is dead. Our promise was to Moses, so we don't need to worry about this anymore. Joshua knew better than that. He knew that the word of God came through Moses. God spoke to Moses, and Joshua respected that. So he wasn't going to let them out of this. This is a promise. This is what God says. And Moses is moved by God's word when he allowed them to do this. And folks, God's word is always authoritative in all times, and it transcends the leadership of any individual. We stick with God's word. So at this point, we find the tribes are agreeable that they will do this. They will keep their promise. Now, I think there's something else that we need to look at here. The Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh are in a more advantageous position than their brothers. Moses had already conquered the land that they're living in, so they don't have to fight. So they're really now ready for rest. And so they have more advantages than the other uh, the other tribes that are ready to go in to possess the land. Matthew Henry said, When God by his providence has given us rest, we ought to consider how we may honor him with the advantages of it and what service we may do to our brethren who are unsettled are not so settled as we are. You know what Matthew Henry's saying? He's saying when God prospers you, then you need to consider the reason why God has prospered you. Does God prosper you for you alone? And you know the answer to that question is no. God does not prosper you for you alone. God prospers you so that you can help other people. And God never intends for us to take everything that we have and spend everything, our time, our energy, our talents, and our money on ourselves. That's never God's intention. And that's why Jesus is called a servant of men. That's why he came to do it. He gave up everything. So, so God never intends for us to hoard all this stuff for ourselves. There are very few Christians who will embrace and completely follow what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you remember he spoke to the rich young ruler? He said, If thou will be perfect, go and sell what thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
But here's the problem with us as Christians today. We're, we're, we're just too interested in our warm, fuzzy, comfortable lifestyle. And we're always looking at us. Well, we will prosper more in this life. I promise you, you'll prosper more in this life and also in the life to come if you're a person who shares what God has given. This summer, I've had to put out a plea for people to bring their tithes and offerings to church. This group in here, I I probably don't have too much fear that you folks are, are probably all right in that area. But there are many people in the church who evidently have forgotten their duty to bring their tithes and offerings to God's house and to give what God commands. You'll learn this if you don't learn anything else about tithing. You give what God demands because if you don't, he knows how to get it. And he gets it in ways that aren't very pleasant. So not only does their prosperity demand a pledge of loyalty, but also unity demanded it. Joshua would never expect to have a successful campaign if he doesn't have a unified front. All the people have to be the getter. Now, a divided people will not conquer. Back in Kentucky, the state motto there is, United we stand, divided we fall. God could very well have given the victory to the other tribes. He didn't even need those two and a half tribes. He could have left them where they were and he could have taken the whole land with just a handful of people. But the intention of God here is to keep his people together, unified, and to bring the whole people into the land and all of them will be involved in the conquest of it. And in order to do that, that demands loyalty from all quarters. You know, I'm surprised that many people in churches don't really understand this principle. You may not agree with everything that I do. There might be some things that you absolutely don't like what I do. But if God has called me to be the pastor of the church, then it's your duty to be unified here and to support your pastor. There, there ought not to be any kinds of pockets of dissension among the church. So the pastor has to wonder where loyalties lie. Jesus taught that even Satan could not stand divided loyalties. And when Jesus was accused of casting out devils by the power of the devils, he sort of looked at the the people incredulously, and I'll use my own translation here. He said, how stupid is that? Actually, here's what he said in Luke chapter 11. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house faileth. If falleth rather, if Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. So Jesus says, for goodness sake, people, if I cast out a devil by the power of the devil, Satan's kingdom is divided. It cannot stand. Did you know Paul addressed this very same principle in the book of 1 Corinthians? In a few weeks, we're going to talk about it because we're going to be in a study of 1 Corinthians. But he says in verse number 10 of 1 Corinthians 1, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's what God demands of the church. We all have to have the same mind and enter into the same judgment. Well, here they are. At this point, the tribes are unified because those two and a half tribes, they did swear their allegiance. They did make their pledge and said that they would help. And so in verse number 16, they said, All that thou commandest us, we will do. And whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. 
According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Well, if anything, that was great encouragement to Joshua when the leader knows that he has the support of the people and that he doesn't have to fight his own people as well as fight the enemy. That's a source of encouragement. Unfortunately, I think there are pastors in in too many of our churches today that they have to keep fighting the troops, fighting their own troops on the inside rather than concentrating on the devil who's on the outside. In the end of verse 17, we have something very significant that they say because here is a prayer for Joshua. It says, Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. Do you know I'm always encouraged when people tell me that they pray for me? Zella Brisbane was here this morning. She always tells me almost without fail, I've been praying for you. Jack and Francis and Hazel and Claude, often they tell me, I've been praying for you. And you know something? I need prayer. You know why? Because I'm tempted just like everybody else to go out and do things in my own power, in my own wisdom, in my way. And if I don't have the prayers of the people to support me in what I do, I'm not going to be successful as a pastor. So we have to have a unified front here. You need to pray for me and pray for this church as we go forward in this community. Now, here we have this. The the pledge of loyalty is so strong that they swore it under a penalty of death. They were committed to the leader. I'd I'd love to hear some of you say, well, we're committed to the death for you. You may not do that. But in verse 18, they said, Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto thy words and all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong. And of good courage. You need to thank the Lord for this. That he didn't give us three ordinances for the church. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and death for anybody who doesn't follow the pastor. So, thank, be thankful for that. Amen. All right. Okay, there's one more thing we need to consider tonight. The people, these people are going somewhere. I mean, uh, they pronounce the plans to leave. They, the people pledge their loyalty. And always looming in their minds is the promise of the land. They've got something that's truly worth fighting for. And so all the hardships and the turmoil and the fighting that it's going to take, all of that's going to be worth it because they get this land. The hymn writer wrote it so well. It said, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's toils will seem so small when we see Christ. One look at his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So boldly run the race till we see Christ. I've never been one who believed that Canaan is a type of heaven. Many preachers and songwriters make those comparisons, and they say that Canaan is typical of our, of our heavenly home. When I was young, we used to sing the song, On Jordan's Stormy Banks. Many of you know that. On Jordan's Stormy Banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. And so we make a comparison between Canaan and heaven. But actually, there's not going to be any fighting in heaven. We're not going to have to conquer heaven in order to get in there, that's for sure. But there may be some ways in which we can compare heaven to Canaan. And maybe it's not so bad to do that sometimes. So let's look at just a couple of ways now that we could actually compare Canaan with heaven. And the first way would be that the personal inheritance is there. For each of these Israelites... All of them have a portion of land that God's given them. Now, here they've been wandering. They've had no permanent dwellings. They've been out there in the wilderness. Before that, they were in Egypt. Certainly, they had no property rights there. But here, God has given them a land. 
And you know something? As long as this earth stands, that land over there still belongs to Israel. Did you know that? As long as this earth stands, it still belongs to Israel. And you know what will happen? When the millennial kingdom comes, God is going to give them back that land. And you can rest assured of this. There will be no Islamic mosque on the top of the Temple Mount. You can be sure of that. That's their land. Well, that's another subject. We'll preach about that some other time. But this is true of heaven. We have an inheritance in heaven. Every child of God has a personal inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 1... It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. There's no cause for any child of God to think that they won't receive their inheritance. You know why? Because Jesus was very clear about it. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. There are mansions over there, he said, that I prepared for you. Oh, I I love that kind of thought. I mean, I love the thoughts of going to heaven and seeing all the sights that will be there and all the things that God has promised for an inheritance. And the Word of God uses that as an encouragement to us. I mean, the Bible would never talk about rewards and never talk about that heavenly home if, if God didn't expect us to think about that and, and to have that, that hope and that promise out there before us all the time. And so Peter talks about it and Paul talks about it. James and John, all the, all the writers of the New Testament in some way or another, they relate all these things are going to happen to the wonderful inheritance that we have in heaven. Then, of course, Jesus himself, he said that too. So we've got to look forward to that, and God expects us to look forward to it. But of all the thoughts about things that we'll see in heaven, there's something more glorious than just things that will be in heaven. And here's the second thing, how we can compare the two. The presence of God is there. God is there. Now, for Israel, the promised land is where God would be. Israel was to be a theocratic kingdom. God would rule Israel. And so when they got into the land, if you remember, it took about 500 years for this to happen. But eventually, there was a temple built in Israel. And that temple was the place where God dwelt with the people. And and that was the evidence and one of the things that God showed them that, that he was there. So you know what happens to these two and a half tribes that stayed on the other side of the Jordan? They weren't close to the presence of God. They didn't care about being close to the presence of God. And what happened is, as I said a moment ago, they get led into captivity. They go into apostasy. And it's really a shame because the presence of God was there in Israel. Well, thank the Lord for this, that when we get to heaven, the presence of God is there. And we'll always be in the presence of God. And we'll always desire the presence of God. Do you know the reminder that God is there? The Bible says that that city has no need of light, no need of the sunshine, no need of any stars or any outside light because the Son of God himself is the light of that city. And so there's sunshine there, S-O-N, and that's a reminder all the time of the presence of Jesus Christ. So the most wonderful thing when we get to heaven will not be pearly gates, and it won't be streets of gold, It won't be the river of life or the beautiful trees. Those things will be really, really nice. But the most wonderful thing is the presence of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years before Israel ever came into the land of Canaan, and really this even goes back as far as the patriarchs, Job said that he was one day going to see the face of God. 
And he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Right now we're in a fight. The Christian life is a fight, it's a battle, it's a non-stop battle, and it always will be until we lay down this robe of flesh. We're in for a fight. But the wonderful thing about it is, it's all going to be worth it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I told you before, I'm always amazed how Paul makes that statement, considering all the things that he went through. But here's the thing that he had on his mind. No matter what it takes, no matter how hard it is, no matter the difficulties, no matter how sick I get, no matter how bad I feel, everything I go through will be worth it. It's light affliction when I consider what will be mine. Now, I want you to notice this final question for you tonight. Where is my hope? And that's a good question to ask yourself. Where is your hope? Is your hope in the eternal things of God? Or are you right now more concerned at this very moment, what's going to happen tomorrow? What are you worried about right now that's going to happen tomorrow or next week or what's coming up? Where's your hope lie? Does your hope lie in the Lord Jesus Christ? And does it lie in the land that you're going to possess? Well, if that's where your hope lies, then I'm going to tell you, folks, it's time for you to get your feet wet. It's time for you to step out, step into the waters, and watch those waters part. And the thing about it is, don't stay on the east side of Jordan. Don't stay there, because Canaan's where God is. So we've got to step out and follow him and go where he leads. He's got a place for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons that we learn in the book of Joshua. We thank you, Lord, that even though life seems so much trouble at times and things that we have to go through. But this life is short compared to eternity. We thank you, Lord, that you have prepared a place for us. And now, Lord, you ask us to step out, to follow you, to fight in this Christian life, and we will come in to your land of rest. Speak to our people tonight, Lord. Use us in your service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please